This morning we're going to finish, I know some of you are applauding, we're going to finish the first half of 1 Samuel and then take a break. Uh, so we've, we've gone through, this is probably the longest series I've ever been in and I didn't even make it through the whole book. Um, and that's okay. We're going to end on, on a high point. If, if you've never read 1 Samuel before, you know the story that we're going to talk about today. It's an exciting story. Uh, the only danger, I think, in preaching it that worries me a little is that it is so familiar. I'm not sure there's much I can say about it that you don't know or haven't heard. Uh, so I'm not going to try and do anything fancy. I'm just going to preach what's there and the way I feel like uh, it, it talks about the message that's there. Um, Maybe you saw this past week, uh, I made a, a Facebook post uh, with a picture of our van, and I talked about how someone had cut the gas lines, and uh, I'd, have, I'd heard lots of, I've had lots of phone calls and lots of questions, and even an email or two about how that happened and why it happened, and I should have known before making a post that, that posting something like that is sort of an invitation for, for inquiry, right? Uh, especially on social media, it's become so prominent, that's just the way people find stuff out. A lot of folks in my generation and younger just don't even get the paper or read the paper. That's, that's how you know what's going on and, and what's, going, uh, what, what's, what's happening. I think every generation kind of notes some kind of technological shift. Some of you remember uh, the first time you ever had a TV or the shift from a black and white TV to a color TV or a microwave. And, you know, you kind of make notes of all those things. And for me, the technological shift definitely has been the computer. And then also social media. I remember when I remember the first time we got a computer. Growing up, uh, I, I might be this is going to sound condescending, but but to, to to the youth today, you don't know what it's like to not have a computer. You've just always had one, and that's I don't mean that condescending. That's just the way it is. But but my generation was kind of in the middle where they they worked on them at school because schools had grants and stuff to get them, and they had green screens, and you didn't want one in your house anyway because all you did was educational stuff. Uh, but then the shift came to where people actually started getting them in their houses. And, and the first few people that got them were probably people that had a little more money and were more well off. Uh, but then eventually the, it trickled down and everyone started getting a computer. At first, when you first got a computer, you didn't really know what to do with it. My grandparents ha had a computer and they just thought it was a big fancy machine to play solitaire on. And it was for them. That's really all they did for a while. And... You know, that sure looked pretty with that solitaire cards on there. That's what they did. Or, or I played pinball when we first had our computer. And there just wasn't much else to do unless you knew a lot about computers. And then, of course, the Internet became uh, a thing and more widely available. And it was dial-up. And you remember the horrible sounds that it made. The and it took five or ten minutes to get connected. And then you got connected. And, you know, you might could look at a picture, you know, for... It'd take you eight minutes to download it, and you could say, oh, there's a newspaper headline, you know, with a picture or something, and, you know, it, it wasn't all that efficient. Or you could log into a chat room and talk to somebody that you never had a reason to talk to or know, or uh, you might could research. This is before the days of Google, you know, so you'd search things, and you may or may not come up with what you're really looking for. Uh, it was before Wikipedia, and, and really encyclopedias were, were the thing, the hardback encyclopedias. Remember, everyone had an encyclopedia, or, or my family had a set of them. My, my grandparents bought us a set, and we were sure that we would need those. I remember, this, I remember listening to the salesperson when I was like seven or eight. You're going to need these for the rest of your life. And, and we thought it was right. You know, we thought we really would. And, and all that's kind of been replaced through, through digital content. That's just the way the world has gone. 
And I remember when Facebook first came out. Some of you might remember this. I was in college, and Facebook originally started as a social networking thing for college students. I remember getting an official email, actually, that originated from my school, saying, you know, if you provide your... Your, uh, your university email, and that's how you gain access, and it was being open to anybody that was a current college student or was, you know, went to college, was, wasn't a, an alumni, alumnus. And so uh, I thought it was pretty neat, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm never going to use this, but I'll sign up for it, right? And I signed up for it, and, and it's amazing today to look at how Facebook has changed from something we weren't really sure we'd ever use to being something that you know, you can make announcements on and you can sell things on. It's just like a bulletin board for some people. Uh, it's just totally changed. And, and it's really gone from being geared at college students. And, I, and you're not, you're not going to hear this if you don't know this, but it's, it's kind of the old, old person's social networking site. Did you all know that? Some of you know that and some of you are thinking, what? I thought I was cool on Facebook. No, ask, ask your teenager, ask, ask, ask a young person that's... It's the, old, it's the old people's place to do social networking, but some, some of your students still do it, but that's just where they know they have to behave because they know that you're on there. And, and that's just kind of what it's, it's, it's turned, turned into. Um, I, I think when, you know, whether it's Facebook or whether it's another social networking site, we use those things. And, and the appeal, at least for me, is that you can connect with people, you can keep up with people, uh, you can let people know about yourself, all to the degree that you... You kind of want them to know, right? And, and it's been really interesting as, as my generation has aged to keep up with people who otherwise I wouldn't know anything about that's gotten married and that's you know, had babies, that's gotten you know, postgraduate degrees and just had all these changes in lives, different jobs, and they've moved. That's how we keep up with one another now. That's just how we do it. And with that comes an attempt to sort of define ourselves using social media. And we may not admit this, but that's kind of what we do. We, those big changes in our lives, we put those out there because we want people to know about them. And, and if we just give a normal, everyday status update, we do so because we think, well, we want people to know this about us. And maybe it's just a little joke or something silly, but, but all of it is an attempt to let people know something about us, to, to define ourselves to other people. Even if it's just putting Bible verses or encouraging words out there. We, we do that because we want people to, to be encouraged by that. But also to think, hey, that's the kind of person that says encouraging stuff. Well, as we wrap up this first half of 1 Samuel, our focus shifts, shifts from Saul to David. And, and there's no way to know what David was thinking. There's no status update or anything like that. But when you look at his actions and you look at uh, what he says and what he tries to do, uh, we can kind of figure out the kind of person that, that he was, or at least the person that he tried to be, not always perfectly. We read last week how God looked at David's heart, and he found him not perfect, but he found him usable. He found him, someone, uh, he found him as being someone after God's own heart. And so 1 Samuel 17, if you want to turn there, I'm going to be reading in two different places today. It opens up. As always, detailing this conflict with the Philistines that Israel's having. They're always in conflict with the Philistines. If you hadn't figured that out, read 1 Samuel. That's, that's their forever enemy. And it introduces this infamous character we've all come to know as Goliath. Goliath and, and all his, his armor and his, his weapons and 
I'm sure that you have probably images in your mind of Goliath that you maybe read in a children's Bible one day or maybe saw in a picture. We just, you know, he's just this, this giant that we have in our heads. It's almost, it's almost this fable-like story with David and Goliath. And, and you have both of their armies watching as they, they square off in this battle. And it almost seems silly to us that, that the armies would stand beside and watch that. But that was a common pra- practice in their day for the armies to, to allow two representative people to fight in an attempt to, to solve a dispute without you know, having full-scale warfare. It didn't always work, but that was sort of the, the thought behind it, and that was the hope. And David ends up in this situation facing off Goliath simply because he is sent, if you remember, to the battle lines to take care of his brothers, to provide some food. And that's what we're going to pick up with his dad telling him to go and to do that. We're going to see how things unfold. Chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17. Beginning in verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to to battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath The Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Then they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him. This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. In verse 41, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you, that you come, at, come, at, come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered, all those gathered here will know that there is that that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, 
He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. It's a long scripture. As David is headed out, he's unaware of what he's going to get himself into. And I think there's two things in our passage to note to sort of set our course as we talk about this. The first thing is, is David left the flock. He's, he's out shepherding sheep. Remember, he's been anointed as king. So you have this guy that knows he's going to be king at some point, And he's watching sheep. He's, he's doing the same thing he, he's always done. He's, he's watching sheep. In verse 20, he leaves the, the flock with a shepherd to go bring food to the people. Uh, to, to his brothers, to the commander of the army. And then in verse 32, he has this... This phrase that he tells Saul, he says, your servant, your servant, he identifies himself. Of course, anybody would identify themselves as a servant when talking to Saul, but I think it's important. Your servant will go and fight him. And it seems like David, the reason God looked at his heart, seems like to me that God looked at his heart and found him usable is because David has the heart of a servant. And, and there's lots of things I'm sure you could probably you know, kind of make a parallel for the David and Goliath story. But, but the thing that stands out that's overriding to me, that, that's the most obvious, is that David was simply, simply a servant. That's what God used him in, in this moment. I mean, you can talk about how big and how amazing it was, and, and, and you can glorify the battle part. and Maybe that's been done when you've heard sermons like uh, about David and Goliath before. But, but I want to focus on David as having the heart of a servant. So for anyone to have the heart of a servant... Uh, what you see David did, and, and the thing that stands out, is that he, pri- he has this priority for, for God's people. It's not just him. It's, it's not uh, what God is doing for him and, and through him and in his life. It's, it's all of the people. I was talking about Facebook a minute ago. I get, I get Facebook messages every once in a while that come to our, our church Facebook. People will, will send messages and and I've gotten some really interest, interesting ones through the years since our church has had a Facebook. And, and one of the recent ones came from a lady who was, was planning on moving to Gatesville. And, and I guess she did, uh, but I haven't heard back from her. Uh, she was planning on moving to Gatesville, and, and her and her husband were, were church shopping, as, so to speak. And so she had all these questions she wanted to know about Eastwood. And, and she says, please, please tell me what Eastwood believes about the Trinity, the Bible, the end times, and the sanctity of marriage. And so I wrote a, a general little response to that, and, and I pointed her to a, a statement on our website, the Baptist Faith and Message, that is sort of a general statement of what most Baptists believe. And, and I pointed her to that, and I thought, I, and, and I was thinking, I was like, this probably isn't going to be enough. <laughs> you know, I figured she was going to want to know more. And of course, she, she responded to that. She said, well, do you believe the Bible is just infallible, or do you believe it's inspired and inerrant? And most of you are saying, I don't even know what those words mean. Do you believe Jesus will, will return before or after the tribulation? Do you believe someone can be divorced and still be a deacon or a pastor? And her questions went on. And what I wanted to say was, if you really want to know what our whole church believes about all that stuff, you're going to have to come to church and ask every individual person. I mean, we're Baptists. None of us are going to agree on all that, right? I mean, seriously. Stand at the door and ask each individual person to figure out what we believe. I didn't say that. I was, I was a little nicer. But, but I hadn't heard back from her. 
I've had, I've had Facebook messages that ask, you know, what, what does your church offer for children or youth or adult Bible study? What can your church do uh, in this area? How can your church do this? I've never had someone send me a message that says, what kind of people go to your church? Can you believe that? Never. No one's, no one's asked that. And we don't think about that really initially. But, but that is church, isn't it? It's, it's the people of God. And, and, and for probably a, a good number of us, it ends up being the reason that we stick around. You know, even beyond the programs and beyond beliefs sometimes. I think when you look at our text, you see David prioritizing God's people. He says twice. Well, we read already verse 20. He left his flock. And then in verse 22, he leaves his supplies at Israel's camp. All the stuff that he has. And he goes just to check on his brothers and see what's going on. And, and of course, that hastened his encounter with Goliath, didn't it? And in verse 26, he asks, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And it could be said at this point that David is showing his humanity a little bit. You know, I mean, is there something I'm going to get if I fight this guy? I mean, I could kind of relate to wanting to know that. But on the other hand... I think David is just wanting to make sure that some, something has been offered. There's some kind of impetus for someone to take on this guy. I'm, I'm not sure he's 100% sure he's going to take on Goliath yet. I, I mean, has, has, have we offered anything? Has anyone decided to stand up? I think that's kind of where he's at. The latter part of verse 26 shows his heart. He's, he asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's... He's concerned about the people of God. And, and I think all of us initially come to church kind of like that lady and like the other folks that, that send those messages they, to get something out of it, right? Well, we go because there's, there's something about it or, or we hope there's something about it that's going to help us and encourage us or uplift us and, and, and do something for us. And, and in my experience, Eastwood really is a place that strives to meet every person where they're at. To help them out, to encourage them, to, to, to help whatever it is that they need. That's, we really strive to be a church that does that kind of stuff. But I think in order to really have church be church, you have to move beyond that. You, you have to let the people of God be the people of God to you. I mean, does that make sense what I'm saying? They, they have to be something to you other than just the other folks sitting in the pews. Or, or the other folks that can do something for you. Or, or the other folks that are in the crowd that you've got to find to make sure you get your spot. I mean, they, have, they have to be something to you. And, and I'm not saying you've got to be social to go to church. That's not the point. Or, or an extrovert. Or, or you've got to talk to so many people. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But the church has to be the church to you. A mentor of mine used to say that ministry, and I think you could say service, is measured by the names of people. It's how you prioritize people that, that affects having the heart of a servant. Of course, service is doing something, right? So the other part is that, that to have the heart of a servant, you've got to be willing to do something. You've got to be willing to volunteer. I don't know if any of you are, are, are hockey fans. We don't watch a lot of hockey in this part of the country. There's a practice the NHL has of, of designating emergency goalies. You familiar with that practice, anybody? Good, I can just lie about it. You won't know about it. <laughs> Yeah, I read this article. They have emergency goalies. If both teams' goalies are injured, or one team, both, all of their backup goalies are injured, you don't have any goalies, you've got to have someone stand in front of the net. 
And in the old days, the individual teams were in the practice of just pulling people out of the stands. Just some random person having them sign a waiver. I mean, because bottom line, just put some pads and stand in front of the net. Well, that decreases the chance of the puck getting in a little bit, right? Whether they know what they're doing or not. But in recent years, that, that has become more of a, of a formalized thing where they train the goalies. They provide a little bit of training and do a little bit of screening. Uh, but, but they're not pe- They're just average people. They're, they're doctors or construction workers or, you know, teachers. They're just regular people. They don't travel with the team. They don't go to practices. But, but in the chance that they're called upon, they get to put on a professional hockey uniform, put on pads and go and take the ice. And even if it's just for two seconds, I mean... Can you imagine? I mean, even if you're not a hockey fan, that, that's kind of a, a cool thing. Think about if you got to do that, if you got to dress out with, the, with, with your favorite team and your favorite sport, maybe take the field at a football game for the kickoff for a second. I mean, that'd be a pretty big deal. And so you have these folks that, that volunteer to do that. But man, that they, they get something out of it, don't they? It's not quite the same when signing up for a church committee, isn't it? <laughs> I'll do it. No, it doesn't quite happen that way. A servant doesn't volunteer for fame or glory or privilege, but because of their heart. By the time David gets to the place where he's ready to volunteer, he's asked, he's felt out this opportunity, hasn't he? He's asked, you know what, does someone gonna, are we going to get something here? Is, does the person that volunteers get something? And then he's had this argument with his brother Eliab. And, and Eliab says, you know, you just came to watch the battle. And, and he accuses him of, of, being, of having false motives for being there. And, you know, I don't think David's probably innocent of, of making some snarky comments at Eliab in that moment. I mean, we know how siblings are. I, I'm sure he probably was. He's probably rude to him. I would have been. But at the end of the day, after Saul summons him and after David kind of fills out the opportunity, we, we see his heart when he says, Let no one lose heart, verse 32, on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And so David's heart really is for the heart of other people, of the morale of, of the people of God. And we make a lot of assumptions when, when it comes time to volunteer for stuff, especially if it's not something that's all that glorifying or glamorous. We assume that, that it's going to take a lot of time for us, a lot of effort, and, and sometimes it might, but, but it might not. We recently had a few folks sign up to, to be added to our scripture reading rotation. And, and I think it's great. I would love for as many people who want to do that get a chance to do that. And, and you might think, well, that's not really a, a big thing. I'm not doing anything all that important by volunteering to do that. But you are. You, you are demonstrating one, one of the, the principles that, that just about everybody believes that's an evangelical or Baptist Christian is that just anybody can read the Bible and, and interpret it. You have the right to do that. And you're modeling that for people as you read Scripture. I remember when we first started you know, allowing other people to read Scripture or asking other people to read Scripture... Usually it was just a staff person that did it. Sometimes I did it. And, and when we first started doing that, uh, one, one of the Sundays, Michelle came up and she read scripture. And, and I guess Emily was three or four. It's been a little while. And she turns to me and she says, girls can get up there and talk. And I said, yes. Yes, they can. And man, that seems like a small thing, but, but you are modeling for others that... that Everyone that knows Christ has this, this precept where they can read Scripture to the church and, and not have to feel like they're, they're, they can't interpret it or understand it. I mean, we're all one in Christ. That's, that's a ministry. Whether you think it's small or big is not the point. Sometimes, 
And, and honestly, as a church, we should be better at asking people to volunteer, shouldn't we? We should be better at, at saying we really need someone to do this instead of waiting until the business meeting and no one, the person's not there and nominating them. That's, that's the default Baptist way to do stuff, right? Because we don't want to ask anybody. We should be better at that. But sometimes a willingness to volunteer means not waiting to be asked. And the reason we can do those things with the heart of a servant is because our confidence isn't any of those things. It's not even in ourselves. When you look at David, he has this huge confidence in God. And that's why he can do what he did. That's why he can face Goliath. You've, uh, or most of you, I guess, have met our director of missions, Richard Ray. And, and, and Richard is, is very different from me. And, and I've joked about this with Terry. I mean, he's, he's got the opposite personality as me. Uh, but one of the things I admire about him is that he, he really does have this, just this amazing confidence in God. He's, he's been in our, our tribe. If you don't know what a director of missions is, just think bishop and Catholic life. That's... That's a rough translation. You know, he he's, he's not, doesn't have any authority over any of our churches, but he he's kind of helps out all of our churches in our area. And so since he's come, we've added another county. We, we, we had three counties in our Travers area. He's added a county. We've added Evant. Uh, he helped. If, if you look back in our back parking lot, we have a, a laundry trailer back there that he, uh, the, the association actually owned it. He encouraged us to, to do something with it. We've turned it into a, a laundry unit that, that helps in disaster recovery efforts. He's, he's helped us purchase the Travers Baptist Retreat Center, where the men's and the ladies' retreat is going to be uh, towards the end of September. And he's just, he's just added a bunch of stuff. And I remember when he, when he came, they were, they were each, each uh, county got, got to interview him and ask him questions. And so I asked him, I said, you know, in, in, in a post-Christian time, I was trying to be really smart, give him a tough question. I said, in a post-Christian time when denominations are declining, what encouragement, what hope do you have about, you know, well, this, a director of missions job that's over a traditional denomination? And his response was short and simple. And he said, so the confidence I have is that I've seen God work through traditional denominations and Baptist life. I've seen God do it. And that's my encouragement. Short and simple. Didn't, didn't. Didn't elaborate. He's, so, he's just optimistic. And, and, and as you know, as I've admitted to you all, I tend to be more on the realistic side. And, and the thing is, we can't let our, our being realistic, we can't let that choke out our perceptions or our confidence in God. We can't let our perceptions of reality choke out the confidence we have in God to sometimes do things that we don't expect or, or things that we don't think are, are supposed to, to, to be normal. That's what makes the story of David and Goliath so, so amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, he has this un, untold confidence, and it's against all odds that he goes up against Goliath. And when you just read the dialogue, it's almost like you're reading, you know, one of your favorite westerns or something. And verse 44, this, this is just a classic line from a bad guy. Goliath says, come here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. I think, I think Yosemite Sam said something like that to Bugs Bunny one time. It's just your classic bad guy line, isn't it? But the difference in this story is that when, when the good guy, when David responds, he's not pointing the bad guy to himself. He's not pointing the bad guy to the fact that, that he has these high morals and standards and he's got it all worked out. He points him beyond himself. In verse 45, when it says, You come against me, David says to him. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, 
whom you have defied. Blast the trumpet, man. That's just exciting, isn't it? It's not, it's not me. It's, 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 it's God. And that's what gives him the confidence. As someone that's logically inclined and I strive to be level-headed and realistic, it's tempting for me to put all my confidence in what I can understand and what I can hypothesize and what I can guess. And God wants us to do that to a degree. He wants us to use our brains. Don't hear me saying God doesn't want you to think about stuff. But when it comes to service... Service doesn't always make logical sense when we give ourselves to something. It didn't make sense for David to fight Goliath, did it? It doesn't make sense for you to give your time and your money and your energy to, to a church. It's not going to turn around and necessarily reward you all the time for it. It doesn't make sense for you to step up and do that job that nobody else wants to do. It doesn't make sense for you to, to have a job that you feel like, well, this is what I'm called to do, even though... Even though I know it could make more money doing something else. That, that kind of stuff doesn't make sense. But it's what characterizes the heart of a servant. And at the end of the passage, what we discover about David is as he steps up to this opportunity, we see that God's people remember him for it. People with the heart of a servant. If you just know someone that loves to serve, you, you remember them, don't you? They stand out to you. Before Billy Graham passed away, he was asked, what do you want on your gravestone? Do you remember what he had printed or what his son had printed? Preacher. That was it. Preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was on his tombstone. He could have had evangelist. He could have had someone who led thousands of people to Christ. He could have had all, all this amazing. He just said, preacher. That's what he wanted. And that's something for sure that we knew. We know it's almost an understatement. We know he lived up to that and... And went beyond that. And I think it's interesting when you ask people that question. That is kind of the thing that they, they do. When you ask, what do you want on your tombstone? Even if it's people that, that have done great things and done amazing things, they kind of go to the, the general things of life. Whether it's family, father or, or wife or husband, mother. And yeah, they might mention a, a job that they had. But it's never, I got this award or I did that. It's, it's always... The general things that, that we deal with day to day that, that people want to be remembered by. The heart of a servant is remembered for those things. Those, those things that they do that may not be fancy and may not stand out. But are the things that really made a difference. So it's not a coincidence that David and Goliath is a popular story. But can you imagine? Just think for a moment. What if, what if it was Saul and Goliath? What if it wasn't David and Goliath? What if Saul would have been the one that defeated the giant? I don't think the story would be near as popular. Because the thing that's amazing about it is not just that it happened. That's part of it. But, but the thing that's amazing is, is, is the character contrast, the good versus evil. And ultimately, even beyond all of that, we know that the story is, is not just this one isolated incident for David. We know that it characterized him as a person, the person that he tried to be throughout all of Scripture. That's why the story is so popular. Because David makes it that way. Because the way people remember David for. You know, I get asked sometimes by people, uh, what, what preachers do you listen to on the internet or on TV or on podcasts? That's a thing now. People listen to preachers on podcasts, speaking of technology. And every once in a while, I'll listen to one of the big names, you know, one of the famous folks. But, 
But to be honest, most of, of the, the people that I listen to preach and teach when, when I'm looking to, to be fed and, and to hear a good sermon, uh, for the most part are not people anybody would know. They're just friends that I have. They're people that I know. People that, that I've talked to about ministry. People that, that I've listened to and, and, and I know their hearts. And I know that their goal is to be used by God. And, and, and maybe they're a better preacher. Maybe they're not than, than the big famous people. But, but knowing who they are and knowing their character makes the difference in how I receive their message. And that's why I listen to them. Having a servant's heart is the goal. But if we're honest, serving others is hard. Kevin Miller is a pastor in Illinois. And speaking of Facebook, this has been, social media has been the theme for the whole sermon. So we're going to wind down with a Facebook story. He, he did one of those things that, that a lot of preachers are doing these days. And, and he, he asked a question of his congregation on social media. And he asked the simple question, what makes it hard for you to serve other people? And he got lots of responses and some of them are, are, are pretty good. And I think we can relate to most of them. One, one response says, serving is hard when it doesn't fit into my schedule or plan. Relate to that. Another person says it's hard when someone's needs seem endless. When do you draw the line? When do you stop serving? Another person says there is such limited energy left after a demanding workday meeting our basic responsibilities. How do you balance the need for rest and serving others? And all those are, are, are good things. Here's the one I think I've related to the most. My favorite answer. What makes it hard to serve others? Others. That was, the only, that was it. It left it at that. David faced opposition. He faced ridicule. He faced doubt. He faced disbelief leading up to volunteering for service. But his heart kept him focused on what mattered. If you struggle to have the heart that serves, whether it's within the church within your family or, or just being a person that prioritizes that. Let's, let's approach God together and let's ask Him. Let's ask Him to help us be that way. Pray with me.